0: Hello and welcome. This is On Mic with Jordan Rich. When I was a kid, I loved monsters, particularly the universal movie monsters. Frankenstein, Dracula, The Wolfman, The Mummy. Oh, I couldn't get enough. So when I had the chance to talk with David Skull, credited as one of the true experts on all things monsters, non-fiction books right up my alley and maybe yours. Books like Hollywood Gothic, The Tangled Web of Dracula from novel to stage to screen, The Monster Show, A Cultural History of Horror, Dark Carnival, The Secret World of Todd Browning, and so much more. David is a walking encyclopedia of all things spooky and eerie in the movies, and he's a great cultural historian. So as we present this podcast during the month of Halloween in 2021, I am psyched and pumped to talk with David about monsters and more as we go on mic right now with David Skull. I, like you, am a monster kid. Hey, what's your definition of a monster kid? David?
1: Well, uh, you, you know one when you see one. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I and you, um, I think I'm a bit older than you, but I'm part of a uh, the first generation that grew up with the classic monster movies when they uh, were being released to television for the first time mm. in the 50s and 1960s. And um, it was really a rather tribal thing. There were uh, all across the country, fan clubs kind of erupted and there were these monster magazines and every uh, fan clubs and every town had its own television horror movie host. Mine was Goulardi in Cleveland, Ohio, but uh, there were many, many others. Uh, uh, there was Zachary uh, Vampira. happened a bit uh, a bit before. She was really the, the trailblazer, but um, they're still going on. I was just on uh, Creature Features the other night oh, and great! they and uh they're they're on their third round of uh, hosts over 30 years but uh it's an enduring kind of kind of phenomenon and i think it was because we we um connected with these monsters for all kinds of reasons um uh, but the films themselves were pretty damn inaccessible there was no mm. home video there was no streaming on demand and uh, the only way you, you had to wait for, a, you know, a television station to show something or uh, uh, for some art cinema to do a rare, you know, uh, theatrical revival. And uh, that was me with uh, Cleveland had kind of a blackout on the Universal Monsters all through the 1960s, which uh, was when I was uh, getting... Uh, you know, hot and heavy with uh, Dracula and Frankenstein <laughs> and all the others. And um, But I couldn't see the films. I could yeah. read about them. I could look at the pictures. I, could, I, I, I collected movie stills. I s- started sending away to, uh, to a place in New York called Movie Star News that would sell you um, actual uh, original negative prints from these classic films for 50 cents. And uh, they're, wa- they're worth quite a bit more now.
0: Were you, were you a uh, an Aurora model kid as well? Because I had all the monster models. I had uh, Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, Mummy. I
1: I had them all. It's not within reaching distance, but I still have my Frankenstein. <laughs> I'm very proud of him. And uh, my mother did preserve him somehow up in the attic, and uh, I reunited with him uh, um, a few decades ago. But uh, but he's one of my most uh, <laughs> treasured treasured. Uh, 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 points of reference to to that whole.
0: Well, you've made made a career as a cultural historian and as an expert in this area because you love it so much in looking at not just the characters and the films, but but the stories behind them and some of the um, actual, on an academic level, some of the actual goings on in society that that prompted the kind of entertainment that we see. And I'd love to get into that with you a bit because read some of your stuff and you, you, you accurately point out that what was going on in the world was pretty horrific. I'm talking about World War I, the, the gas attacks, the maiming and the killing of so many hundreds of thousands, millions of soldiers, and then World War II and then the Atomic Age. Talk a little bit with me and our audience here, David, about the very close connection between the entertainment that we saw and see and what's going on in the world
1: well first of all back in the uh early part of the 20th century in 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 europe uh uh, horror movies had their roots in german expressionism which was a art movement um actually very diverse and wide-ranging but in 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 the cinema it was directly related to the uh great war that had had just passed and had, uh, to some people's uh, minds, uh, really destroyed Europe or drained its life away like a vampire. And that's um, exactly what the makers of the German expressionist film Nosferatu uh, intended. It wasn't, it wasn't academics coming, you know, years later and uh, putting our two cents worth in. It was part of the publicity for the film. Uh, It wasn't escapist entertainment. You know, it was considered serious art, at least in Europe. And um, America found ways to, uh, you know, commercialize these same um, uh, conventions and tropes and and characters. And it's not uh, at all a coincidence that many German uh, filmmakers and technicians fled Germany in the early 30s, and they came right to uh, right to Hollywood.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's so fascinating to think about uh, not just the vampire legend, but also the idea of of reconstituting a dead body and and putting parts together, a la Frankenstein, and and even Mary Shelley's version is so different than the version we see in a lot of respects. But that that really is. A reflection of what's going on around the movie makers i would imagine
1: oh yeah uh, mary shelley didn't really tell us uh you know how the monster was brought to life uh, later she said she had a dream about some powerful engine but it seems like just uh, alchemy or almost black magic that's some kind of a elixir of life perhaps is mm. is, is, is used but uh, when it came time for the movies uh the 1920s uh, was a time of great uh, uh, scientific progress, and uh, we were being told, you know, the um, you know the, the future, uh, the future wasn't going to be the way it used to be. It it was uh, going to be streamlined and electrified, and and uh, uh, there was a lot of talk in the press about cosmic rays, which people didn't uh, totally understand but they were impressed by uh uh by them and all these things kind of came together in the the hollywood uh iteration of of, of frankenstein right who is kind of a strange uh, he's not just a piece together corpse he's, he looks like a robot with all those those angles and electrical uh appurtenances and uh, an ape it's got the overhanging brow, but it's the square uh, head. He's like an art deco, you know, statue or a mannequin or something. Uh, but the, uh, the long arms protruding from the sleeves and the, 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 the shuffling walk. And uh, it uh, most monsters combine two impossible different, at least two impossible different uh, 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 qualities. You know, they're both living and dead or they're they're uh they're human and animal or they're machine and animal um it's it doesn't make sense it's a paradox Mm. but it's the it makes a kind of dream logic to us and um it's exactly like things we we dream about they couldn't exist in the real world but somehow uh they're reconciled and brought together
0: talking with a fellow monster kid here let me Raise the issue of the Universal series because those are the the great treasures from the 30s and uh, and all the way into the early 40s and it it's so true when you were talking about television as we were growing up it was so difficult to see and to catch Dracula or Frankenstein because they were so rarely shown and when they were it, you know I wasn't around <laughs> I was sleeping but the Universal style was very special and it all began with Dracula I guess in the States. And then, of course, uh, you've even written about the Spanish version of Dracula, which is fascinating, and Frankenstein, the Wolfman, etc. Share with us a little bit of insight into what was going on in the Universal factory at that time. Who were the leaders and shakers, the movers and shakers there?
1: Well, the founder of Universal was uh, Carl Lemley, who um, um, came over from Germany a few decades earlier, He started as a haberdasher in the Midwest, and then he got into the Nickelodeon business and uh, gradually um, moved to California, founded Universal City. And Universal um, was not at all a a pretentious uh, 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 temple of art by any means. It it, uh, specialized in Westerns and and serials, and uh, you know what are called programmers, um, Universal became just a very dependable factory, you know, for turning out product for uh, for theaters all across the country. And um, it wasn't a prestige studio, uh, you know, Paramount and and MGM were, uh, you know, in that in that category, but uh, it was Universal that uh, first made hay with monsters mm. and it happened because uh lemley senior turned over the reins of the studio to his son julius who promptly rechristened himself uh carl lemley jr <laughs> yes. and um he was a um strange little man uh and a lot of people who knew him just you know frankly called him a spoiled brat but he um he idolized uh, Lon Chaney Sr., the man mm. of a thousand faces, mm-hmm. who did a lot of terrifying characterizations in the in the silent era. Uh, but in the silent era, there weren't any supernatural monsters or real ghosts. That was a European convention that uh, America didn't want to uh, didn't want to
0: touch. Right. It was, it
1: was Taboo. Uh, the audience, they thought audiences would laugh.
0: The, the Phantom of the Opera was not uh, supernatural. He was a man scarred by the acid and so forth, right? So that—that's what. you yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, different things in different movies. Uh, in the uh, uh, in the original book, he was born um, 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 disfigured. The same thing in the the movie. It's not really talked about. He's horrible to look at because he's horrible to look he's at. He's terrible
0: to look at. Yeah. Let's talk about Dracula because this is the. The culmination of all the right things happening, sadly for Lon Cheney Sr., he was dying of lung cancer, I guess, at the time and couldn't take the role. But you had the, the man who steps in, Bela Lugosi, who had been playing it, if I'm not mistaken, on on the stage for many years. He had been. Uh,
1: it, it's uh, Universal certainly wanted Cheney. and I've seen some of the correspondence between uh, – he was um, – contracted to MGM at the time and universal thought they could get a, um, a a loan out. Carl Lemley senior absolutely refused to do it without Cheney because he didn't, he thought it was just too much of a risk. The, uh, the reader's reports are there from the, the stage play was very, very popular in the 1920s and it was basically a drawing room mystery melodrama. That was the kind of the convention in most of those drawing room mystery melodramas, like The, the Cat and the Canary and The Bat and, and others, the, there would seem to be supernatural goings on, but they would be explained away as, you know, some kind of criminal conspiracy, usually um, a plot to uh, steal an inheritance or embezzle a fortune.
0: Early, or like early that. Scooby-Doo. <laughs>
1: exactly. And, uh, but that wasn't, that wasn't Dracula. And yeah. that's why all the studios resisted it they saw it making a lot of money uh, you know, on Broadway and touring around the country. And they said, no, uh, we don't think so. And this is really a gruesome topic. And a lot of this book seems, you know, unfilmable. And uh,
0: Speaking of the book, if I can jump in here, you also have done a, a really great retrospective on Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula. And I was fascinated to, to dig in a little bit to what you've discovered, of course. And that is that uh, a lot of it, is really Bram Stoker just using uh, i guess story from Romania wherever it was creating this world is uh, do we really owe him pretty much everything when it comes to Dracula?
1: Yes and no because he uh, turned his back on a lot of established conventions in uh, vampire melodramas both uh, in fiction and uh, on the stage there were plays there were there were operas uh, that he knew about. There were penny-dreadful uh, serials like Barney the Vampire or The Feast of Blood that uh, ran on for you know, thousands of pages. And, and uh, uh, the, the authors were paid by the word. So uh, that kind of explains that. Uh, but uh, this whole romantic conception of the vampire, that has reasserted itself. Uh, Stoker created a completely different kind of vampire. He was a darwinian monster um, many people were very anxious about the uh the lessons of darwinism and the idea that there might be a blurred boundary between uh human beings and uh, uh the um uh lower animals and it uh but the the basic story about a, a transylvanian uh nobleman who um uh, um, ensnares a, a real estate uh, broker to come uh, to Transylvania and, and buy a house for him in, in, in London and then goes to London. And uh, that story is very durable. And mm. that has remained. But the character of Dracula in the book is not a romantic character. It is not uh, about um, uh, Dracula's attempt to reunite with his uh uh lost love from centuries ago um by reincarnation or other other means uh, that was all these things were all added and but to, but it went back to the you know the idea of the vampire in literature grew out of lord byron and his circle and he was of mm-hmm. course a, a notorious womanizer and uh uh the first story that uh his uh, physician and traveling companion, John Polidori, wrote called The Vampire, was taken to be about the exploits of Lord Byron himself. And that uh, Byronesque vampire, just uh, the, the public just wanted it. Producers just wanted it. They wanted the love story, they wanted the sex appeal. Yeah. And um, so we got a, you know, Dracula became more and more of an anti hero. Uh, and um, even a romantic icon, I mean, right, uh, right. Uh, Frank Langella in the 1979 film probably is is the best example of that. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful film. Stoker would have trouble recognizing the character, <laughs> but that's, uh, that's, that's the way it goes. And I, I used to, um, you know, always uh, uh, complain that, uh, you know, Stoker was never given his due and they never filmed the book exactly the way he wrote it. And now I think it's uh, I've come to realize that Dracula stays alive and stays immortal through his transformations.
0: Mm. I'd like to I'd like I'd I'd just like to talk to you. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'd like to talk to you about the 1931 film because to me it's it's a it's a brilliant film, and I think the director deserves a lot of credit, Todd Browning, and. He also directed Freaks, which is one of those things you got to see if you're a monster kid at least once. Uh, but let's talk about Todd Browning, his flair for setting that scene and, and everything about it had richness and texture to it, at least as I look at the film. What, what kind of director do you think he really was?
1: Dracula, his talkies through him, he was a master of silent film. He did many of Lon Chaney's most successful pictures, and including a uh, kind of a fake vampire story called London After Midnight, uh, in which we can see the kind of uh, makeup appliance that uh, Cheney might have used had he gone on to play Dracula instead. Browning was completely self-taught. He grew up in uh, carnivals and sideshows and circuses and uh, then early uh, two-reeler comedies. He was a comedian. He was in vaudeville. And uh, he learned motion pictures um, on the spot, you know by doing he was just there at the, the dawn of the the talkies uh, he and another he was from louisville kentucky like uh, d.w griffith and um uh was very very eager to succeed and um and he did eventually uh it became known as hollywood's you know master of you know the mystery story and right uh, right strange twisted characters and and so of course uh uh he would be the first one to be thought of for um, for Dracula. Actually, he wasn't. Uh, Paul Lainey, uh the uh, German director who did the Cat and the Canary for Universal, was the studio's first uh, uh, choice to direct it. But then they got the idea that they were going to do um, do it with Chaney, and uh, the idea of getting both Chaney and Browning became. And I. I can't prove this because a lot of the the the, uh, the paperwork has not survived. But uh, I think by getting Browning and signing him to a term contract, they thought they could uh, lure Cheney along. Unfortunately, people didn't. It was one of the best kept secrets in Hollywood was that uh, uh, Cheney had terminal cancer. Mm. And um, he died in the middle of the Dracula negotiations after uh, Universal had purchased the rights. Hmm. Uh, They finally bought it because they didn't want uh, MGM to get it, because they thought MGM would do it with Cheney. Browning, um, he was not uh, comfortable with uh, uh, talking pictures. And in many ways, Dracula is still a silent movie. In fact, it was prepared as a silent film as well with uh, intertitles for
0: theaters that weren't uh, wired mm. for sound in those days. I, that I did not know. Wow. And can, yeah. you, can you talk a little bit about the fact that there was a Spanish version, I guess, made at the same time, and who directed that, and what was that all, all about? I, I'm fascinated by that.
1: Well, it was directed by George Melford, who was probably best known for uh, in the silent days for directing uh, The Chic with Rudolph Valentino. Of course. Uh, the producer of the uh spanish version of dracula which was filmed on the same sets at night um the the sets didn't get a rest uh neither did dracula's cape and costume and his hairpiece which were you know used uh, day and night 24 7 uh you know for a couple of months of filming um it uh was kind of a soap opera and it it, it formed the basis of my first uh Uh, film book, Hollywood Gothic, uh, about the tangled web of Dracula from novel to stage to screen. And um, there was another, uh, there was an assumed heir apparent at Universal named uh, Paul Conner, who was uh, Lemley Sr.'s right-hand man. And uh, he was in charge of all the, the foreign markets and distribution. And and uh there didn't seem to be anybody else everyone was kind of shocked when he gave it to his 21 year old uh, uh, son who had had only one he had a major success he had produced uh, all quiet on the western front which was universal's first prestige film and uh dracula was also supposed to be a prestige film but it, it kind of ran out of money um it was the worst year of the great depression um, many of the studios were tottering uh, a lot of people think it was you know dracula and frankenstein later the same year that uh, saved universal and just imagine how different hollywood history would be if that studio went out of existence uh, nothing would have happened exactly the same way so uh, dracula kind of creaks as a film um one of the um uh, uh, the lead players, uh, David Manners, who had, uh, second billing under, under, under Lugosi, um, told me that none of his scenes were directed by Todd Browning and it was Carl Freund, the German cinematographer who had done, uh, things like Metropolis in, uh, in, in Germany, who was responsible for the, the visual style. And, and, um, it's, um, it's interesting. I think, uh, Universal didn't have much use for Todd Browning without Cheney, mm. you know, and uh, that was just. And uh, he did not finish out his. Uh, um, he was supposed to do five pictures for Universal. He ended up doing three, and the only one people remember is uh, is is Dracula. And it is a uh, uh, so it's it's kind of a mixed bag, uh, Browning went back to MGM, and because Dracula was such a success, whether or not, uh, you know, it was uh, uh, Browning's influence or the, uh, uh, the screenwriter's uh, uh, impact or mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, the cinematographer slash director's uh, you know, we don't know. It was it was uh, not expected to succeed and the audiences flocked to it. It yeah. was so weird and so different. And, right, right. and it it struck, uh, you know, it was kind of a lightning rod for just free floating anxieties in the worst year of the Great Depression. There were no social safety nets in those days. It really did seem like the end of the world. Mm. And Dracula himself was kind of this mysterious, draining, unstoppable force you know, like the depression itself.
0: Right. There's so much we could talk about. I just want to focus on the other director at the time of note, and that's James Whale with Frankenstein. And uh, most of us who are, I'm a pseudo-aficionado, not like you. Most of us really think The Bride of Frankenstein is is the greatest film in that series. But James Whale and... Most
1: of us do, actually. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. James Whale is a fascinating character as well. And the film... The original Dracula, I'm sorry, but the original Frankenstein is still right up there with me as one of my favorites. I'd never miss it if I can catch it. Talk a little bit with us about james Whale, um a figure that uh, they made a movie about him, in fact, not too many years ago. Yeah.
1: and I was there actually I, I worked on that production. I did the behind the scenes documentary with, with Ian McCallum. But, uh, one, yeah. we could do a, we could do a full show just on on uh, that. it was uh, it was just an extraordinary experience. but Universal uh, immediately rushed to get Frankenstein into production. They uh, preempted the Broadway rights to a a stage play that had been done in England by the same people who produced uh, uh, Dracula there. And they wanted Lugosi to, to appear in it. Um, They were billing him as the new Lon Chaney uh, on, you know, in the ads. And uh, he was going to be the new man of a thousand faces. And, um, clashed with with universal he certainly clashed with the makeup artist uh jack pierce i believe he thought he was going to play dr frankenstein um you know the romantic lead this time not uh not not have his features (laughs) hidden under uh tons of makeup and and grease paint and stuff and uh he he famously said during the production uh you know i'm an actor not a scarecrow The script he was offered, the character did not have any uh, pathos, but he was working with a director named Robert Flory, who had been provisionally assigned to Frankenstein and dropped out. He later did um, Murders in the Remor with with, uh, uh, Lugosi, and it's a a wonderful uh, ode to, you know, the expressionist, the German expressionist uh, uh, look and style and uh whale came in and started tinkering with the script and uh he discovered karloff uh, purportedly in the universal commissary karloff had made like 80 films already he was just he was a working actor you know he did all kinds of bit parts and and uh, he had played a uh, a um a criminal in a thing called the criminal code and uh it, it it's funny how he the pictures of him look very very much like the frankenstein mm. monster from mm. the picture and uh the genius of that makeup is that it did not submerge karloff's features right it just kind of exaggerated them and he had full uh a uh, full expressive you know capacity with his face and it uh it was karloff and whale who created the the pathos yeah. that it the thing we remember so much about the uh uh the frankenstein monster uh, later you know in the series in the 40s um he would just be another grunting stomping uh, robotic thing um and um karloff was right to get out of the series after the uh, third uh, uh, third installment uh, son of frankenstein in 1939 he didn't want uh, in Fr- *Bride of frankenstein he speaks yes and he yes. he objected to that he didn't think thought the monster should have been a uh, um a pantomime part and uh, both dracula and frankenstein you know the are at their heart there is a silent film performance mm. Lugosi's got that voice and all those, those famous lines, but mostly it's his silent presence. It's, it's, he stands there and he stares and, and uh, the monster makes some sounds, but it is uh, another silent movie performance. And uh, it's very interesting. This At the cusp of the, the, the talkies, Hollywood is looking forward and backward at the same time.
0: The point that I'd love to have you and I talk about, and you mentioned the word a couple of times, is pathos. And obviously there are some exceptions uh, in, in film land. But for many of us, the monsters, we, we grew to like them and respect them because we knew they were tortured souls and they were just kind of trying to survive in a sense. I mean, I'm thinking of the wolfman, uh, Lon Chaney Jr., whose only issue was winding up in the wrong forest and getting cursed. But then there were, there were others uh, throughout the, the series and beyond what is it about? This is more of a psych question, but what is it about that that it, why do why do we find those kinds of creatures appealing, and sympathetic? Well, we see some of ourselves
1: in them. Uh, you know, that's the most obvious thing. Uh, they have some. They have more to do with us than uh, we'd like to uh, uh, admit all the time. And the um, in ca- the case of Frankenstein you know the the monster was a sympathetic character in mary shelley's novel mm. uh he was very articulate he didn't just uh, grunt and and uh managed to uh, spew out a few lines of dialogue here and there he um was uh literate he was very intelligent uh, I, I don't know how uh, um why the the brain hadn't deteriorated between the time of death and uh, his resurrection? But uh, the uh, his he's a philosophical. Um, the book is a very it's very philosophical, uh, you know, kind of treatise. And the monster is aware of his plight. He is he knows he's an outsider, and the plight of the outsider is just you know a classic, uh, yeah. um, uh, classic classic grab. Uh, grab for in uh, audiences love it audiences identify with the outsider absolutely even if the outsider is uh is not up to uh is not on his or her best behavior uh at all times uh you know the transgressions are you know forgiven because Mm. uh the monster has been uh, uh mistreated and uh they've of course uh dracula has gotten kind of the same treatment even stoker did not do anything like that in the book but uh over the years uh dracula too has become a kind of a, an anti-hero uh if not an outright hero and in some
0: indeed i want to i want to ask you just to bring it up to the present and get your take on the modern let's say in the last 20 30 years the modern take on the monster film particularly uh you mentioned uh, the frankenstein monster my favorite rendition of the Frankenstein monster as a literate creature is in that miniseries, or maybe it ran a couple of years, Penny Dreadful, if you remember that. Uh, oh yeah. Series, and the monster was, was quite articulate, articulate, and very interesting. But but well, who today is is pumping out the kinds of film, the kinds of character development that that we so yearn for, if we're fans of the 30s and 40s? What what's out there that you really like? holy
1: smokes um and people always ask me you know what's your favorite uh dracula what's your favorite frankenstein and uh in all cases it's like a a, a kind of an edited mashed up uh version that doesn't exist mm. you know that would follow the you know the basic story but uh, use the best moments from uh each film because um there's always something very striking even the films that are misfires misfires. are um, they always manage to to find um, some some new approach to uh, the story or the character, and um, and so it would be kind of dizzying. And I don't have the uh, uh, the video editing
0: chops to do well, it myself. The, the I'm thinking of I, I, modern filmmakers like James Wan, I guess, uh, who's pumping out a lot of scary, notorious, whatever they're called, uh, films one after another, and and Jordan Peele. Uh, who's a former comedy star and still probably a funny guy, but he's cranked out some pretty good ones. Um, I think the secret is is to keep character front and center because you know we end up caring or fearing these characters, but caring for them at the same time. Just an opinion. Oh
1: sure, yeah. It, uh, stories, narrative is character driven, and uh, and when it becomes too mechanical, um, uh, people tune out. And, uh, that happens with a lot of franchises that just kind of limp on, um, you know, forever, uh, and, um, become less and less, uh, less and less engaging. I think what Universal is doing with, uh, its latest incarnations of, of the monsters is interesting. Uh, they did the mummy with, uh, Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise, which wasn't as bad a film as mm. a lot of people thought. I mean, I thought on its own terms it. It was a decent piece of entertainment, and yes, some I agree. Very I agree. The uh, they were going to do Bride of Frankenstein with Bill Condon at the helm. Bill, of course, directed uh, Gods and Monsters and the mm. Twilight series. Uh, he's enormously talented, and it just would have been fascinating that Javier Bardem and uh, Angelina Jolie being attached to it, and um, they pulled the plug. But then they they went to uh, Jason Blum at Blumhouse Productions. And handed over the next one, The Invisible Man, uh, to him to do it as a, essentially as a lower budget uh, independent film. And it was great because it had to work with character. It, you know, it was not all special effects. It, 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 it found a way to uh, bring the story into the, uh, into the modern day. They are now doing a uh, version of, a new version of uh, Dracula. And this time it's apparently going to be set in the American West. Another film being made about uh, Renfield, Dracula's uh, uh, sidekick, who, uh, sidekick and slave, by you know, I guess. Yeah, a
0: bug-eating in- sidekick, yeah.
1: Insect-eating uh, sidekick, <laughs> right. There's another uh, film we can look forward to about the crew of that fated uh, ship that brought Dracula to uh, England from Transylvania. And oh, that's it's called The Last Void of the Demeter. These things just do not go away. And um, streaming has just opened up uh, so many more, uh, you know, possibilities for distributing films. And there yeah. have always been more independent films out there than you know the, the marketplace could bear. I would
0: I would say this. First of all, it's delightful to meet you. I I respect your your knowledge, and I love the work, and I love the enthusiasm. I would say this: if we can bring. Forward another generation of monster kids. We couldn't do any worse than we're currently doing in society. I uh, I grew up uh, adoring these films and these actors and stories about the makeup and all that and uh, and even uh, here's the the best part of the whole thing. You can have the funniest comedy duo in the nineteen forties, Abbott and Costello, and bring all the monsters in. That's a treat for the eyes and ears. Even now, I mean, the idea of seeing. Lou Costello calling for chick chick, 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 When, uh, the, the, the coffin door opens and there's other little, goes, is this the best? It's just the best. I, I'm reliving my youth with you right now. Having a well, good,
1: I, I all ought to, um, retreat to our childhoods. Uh, uh, I certainly have <laughs> with a vengeance.
0: Are you, are you working <laughs> on a project now that you can tell us about or that we can look forward to, or, you just- well,
1: this year, th- this year is the 90th anniversary of the Universal Monster franchise, so I've been doing a lot of uh, uh, hosting of um, uh, uh, screenings and revivals, and I'm going to be host. I'm going to be judging some Universal uh, Monster costume contests. Oh, that <laughs> sounds like fun! I mean, and I'm doing one myself. I'm, I've never um, put on a cape before, but. Uh, I'm having fun duplicating Lugosi's original getup and seeing how far I can take that. Um,
0: well, not the one that he was much, buried in though.
1: Much shorter than Lugosi. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, David, it's a delight to meet you. I wanna give the website, it's www.monstershow.net. And uh, people that's can right. find it all about you in the books and all the activities and so forth.
1: Currently under construction and expansion, but uh, yeah, that's gonna be my,
0: uh, my online home. David Skull, his website, Monstershow.net, an incredible library of scholarly and fun studies all about monsters and movies. And that'll do it for another episode of On Mike with Jordan. Appreciate all the help from Dan Tebow of Fast Witch Media, from Chart Productions in Boston, where we produce the podcast. Special thanks to the growing audience with listeners in over 100 countries and every state of the union. Sure do appreciate it. Visit jordanrich.com for more. Have a happy and safe Halloween. And remember to be well so you can do good. Take care.